previously on Uncontacted. I'm seeing here you haven't reported an incident in a few years. In fact, they seem to have gotten worse. Your unconscious mind creates images of this island. I've taken every medication, seen all the specialists, tried every procedure. Nothing ever works. Who let you in here? I'm leading an operation to investigate the people and locations seen in these photographs. We believe they may be uncontacted, which means we need good, informed people on the team. People like you. I'm not interested. This isn't something you say no to. I'm just crazy. That's it. That's the secret. No one's willing to say it, but it's true. Dr. Walker, open the door. You know I shouldn't be here, right? I could jeopardize the entire mission. You're serving your country. Just focus on that. I'll advise your people, but that's it. I'm not going anywhere near that island. 72 hours ago, NASA scientists detected the sudden appearance of an island the size of Oahu, 400 miles northeast of New Zealand. What we're dealing with is a potential first contact scenario. Why is this a military operation and not a humanitarian one? Do you want to learn about these people or dominate them? If you have a problem with that, I'm confident Dr. Walker is more than capable of advising the mission by himself. These people appear to be no more advanced than what was common in 14th century Europe or feudal China. They would quickly offer their cooperation for a sizable technological offering. You can't be serious. Work with the ship's chandler to assemble a technological supply cache to offer the villagers. We're leaving in the morning. What? I have to go home. It's the episodes, isn't it? There are just some things I'd rather not know. It has to be related. This could finally be it. I just can't. When are you going to stop running away? Avery! Man overboard! Man overboard! They told me I hurt her. This isn't going to end, is it? What are you doing? They told me what happened. Amanda, I am so... You've hurt me before. I managed. If I don't do something soon, I'm going to get myself killed. Do what I say, and don't question my orders. Are we ready, Ensign? Aye, sir. The payload is secure. All right, people. Time to leave. Let's roll. Uncontacted, Part 2. Written, produced, and edited by Jacob Levy. The dinghies tear through the water, chopping through waves. On the horizon, the island grows ever larger. In the leading boat is Avery, Amanda, Val, and Commander Dunn. Avery holds on for dear life while his too loose life jacket bobs up and down around his neck. In contrast, Commander Dunn looks perfectly calm. He rides the undulating waves like an experienced horseback rider. Avery gazes at the island for as long as he can muster until the uneasy feeling in his stomach grows too intense. Dunn speaks into a radio. This is Dunn to Farragut. We are in visual range of the island. Deploy the Reapers. Avery looks at Amanda, confused. But their questions are soon answered as two military drones swoop over their heads. Jesus! The two SUV-sized aircraft fly a hundred feet above them, keeping pace just ahead of the boats. 
These will provide aerial reconnaissance ahead of our arrival. We'll use the telemetry to... Both drones explode in mid-air. Yellow energy ripples like waves in the air around each explosion. Slow down! But there's not enough time. The dinghies collide with something. A yellow energy field that appears out of nowhere. The two watercraft pass through it like a layer of jelly. Time itself moves at a snail's pace as the energy completely engulfs them. Avery slowly turns his head towards Amanda, a look of helpless fear on his face. But before they know it, they're out. The boats come to a quick stop, the shore just a few hundred feet away. What the hell happened back there? We could pass, but not the drones. Why? No one has an answer. The dinghies hit the shore, their undersides grinding against coarse sand. The Marines, dressed in full combat gear, leap out of the boats, pulling them to shore with efficient and practiced precision. Avery and Amanda remain seated, while Dunn, Val, and the other Marines, numbering six total, storm the beach. Forming a half circle, the Marines stand at the ready, guns pointed in every direction, opposite the water. Dunn scans the shoreline. Area secure. Establish a base camp. Professors, you're clear to disembark. Avery and Amanda, dressed in hiking clothes, jump out of the boat, right into the water. Avery soaking his legs. This is done to Farragut. We've made landfall. Do you copy? Farragut, do you copy? <sighs> Whatever it was we passed through must be blocking communications. Anson, keep trying them. All frequencies. Aye, sir. Avery wades ashore and takes his first steps on the island. It's beautiful. The sight is breathtaking. Tall trees ripe with fruit, small shrubs bursting with blooming flowers, waterfalls cascading down smooth rocks into peaceful ponds. Squirrels, monkeys, birds, and butterflies roam unfettered, but something sinister accompanies the tranquil landscape. Sea vessels of all sizes and styles lay decimated across the coastline, broken into jagged wooden splinters and twisted, corroded metal. Avery takes it all in, entranced. Amanda approaches from behind. You okay? It's like stepping into a dream, and I don't want to wake up. It's a graveyard. Some of them look hundreds of years old. If they're all wrecked, it means whoever lives here can't leave. The Marines have established a small base camp fit with tents, workstations, and communication equipment. Dunn addresses the landing party, who gathers around him. Satellite imagery shows a direct path to the village, southeast from this location. The professors will join Ensign Torres and I as we make our trek there. I don't think that's a good idea. What did I just say about questioning my orders? If we travel southwest, not southeast, there are foothills a few hundred feet above the village. From there, we can observe them, hopefully unseen. And how exactly are you so intimately familiar with the landscape of this island? I've seen it enough times that... Well, what I mean is, I've studied the geography. Dunn looks at Val for her opinion. It's a sound approach. Dunn nods, then looks to his Marines. Hold this zone and report in every 15 minutes. I want to know everything that happens. If you step on a sand crab, I want to hear about it. Is our peace offering secure? A Marine pats the metal crate, which now rests on the beach beside the base camp. Speaking of... Avery pushes his way through the Marines until he reaches the metal crate. Professor, what are you doing? Avery rummages through the box until he pulls out a small bottle of pills. Aspirin. 
awful headache. Hmm. Avery pops a few pills. He shoves the bottle into his pocket. It's time to move. Professor, I suppose it's your lead. Avery carefully but confidently leads the group into the trees. Val walks beside him. How's your cat? Kayaka, right? Kaya? To be honest, I haven't really thought about her. The four climb through the hills above the village, Avery out of breath and lagging behind. Don't get out much? I go to the gym. Once a year. <laughs> Avery stops to catch his breath. He looks down at a plant with dinner plate-sized leaves. A neon yellow substance appears to be moving through the leaves' veins. The professor was right. Perfect sight line. Avery forgoes the strange foliage and climbs to Dunn, who hands Avery a pair of binoculars. What do you see, Professor? Far below, a village of roughly 60 small structures is nestled in a large valley. As the satellite images suggested, the structures are a fusion of countless backgrounds and cultures. The village's inhabitants gather in mass around a large metal spire, the same one seen in Avery's vision. Uh, there appears to be some kind of festival or, or celebration happening. What do you make of it? Seeing it up close confirms they must have had some contact with or origin from the outside world. The, the resemblance to our own past is uncanny. Avery passes the binoculars to Amanda. And they look like they all get along. No clear fences or borders separating the different ethnic groups. No structure larger than another either. Meaning? There's no clear leader. At least not one who's idolized. Avery drops the binoculars. His face goes blank. He strides down the hill towards the village. Professor, get back here. Avery is completely unresponsive. Amanda catches up to him and grabs him by the shoulder, but he doesn't stop. Avery! She steps directly in front of him, but Avery keeps walking as if she isn't there. Seeing few other options, Amanda entwines one of her legs with Avery's, tripping him and sending them both crashing to the ground, her slightly on top of him. Amanda rolls off him, then tries to shake him out of it. Avery! Avery! Avery slowly comes to, confused by their precarious position. Amanda? What were you doing? I was... I think... it was calling to me. What was? The spire. I think it's the source. If I could just get to it. Dunn and Val shuffle down the hill to Avery and Amanda. You two okay? We're fine. He just went in for a closer look. Do not disobey me again, damn academics. Avery just stares at the metal spire in the distance. I think we should go in. That is not within mission parameters. Our orders were to observe and observe only. The mission has already changed. We need to adapt. We are not prepared for a first contact scenario. Not even close. What if we didn't have to make first contact? Not yet, anyway. Explain. Avery fixates on the spire. As has been noted, their society appears to be a conglomerate of customs, dresswear, and hopefully, language. Who's to say we couldn't blend in? You know it's not that simple. They'd also be distracted by whatever it is they're celebrating. You're being careless. If we made one mistake, missed one social cue... I hate to agree, but the professor's right. The mission has changed. And if communications are down between us and the Farragut, it's our job to figure out what's causing it. And I'd put my guess on that radio tower. Commander, I urge you to reconsider. We'll split up. You and the Professor will approach from the north. Ensign Torres and I will enter from the south. We'll meet at the tower. 
You're making the right choice, Commander. Amanda catches on to Avery's obsessive gaze at the village below. Avery and Amanda step through the village and experience firsthand what has only been observed from afar. It's like traveling back through time, no sign of the modern world anywhere. The village, while antiquated, is just as beautiful as the rest of the island. Nature integrates seamlessly with the cottages and huts, framing the man-made structures as part of the landscape. Abundant vegetation catches the sunlight and turns it to quiet shade. The whole place could be mistaken for an island resort. Want to tell me the real reason we're here? Excuse me? I want to help you find the source of all this, too. But not when it supersedes the safety of these people. Understanding and helping these people is more important than whatever it is I'm dealing with. You're always looking for solutions where they aren't needed. Uncontacted peoples don't need help. They don't need fixing. And they certainly don't need you to save them. I'm sorry they keep listening to me and not you, but that's what happens when you've published as much as I have. This isn't about publishing. It's about you controlling the narrative. You are desperate to be right. This isn't about being right. It's about looking at the situation, evaluating the variables, and taking the appropriate course of action. <laughs> so it's about being right. I can't believe this. Did it ever occur to you that maybe there isn't an answer to what's wrong with you? That maybe you're just crazy? If it was Amanda's attempt to hurt Avery, she succeeded. Yes. And I hope whatever we find makes that untrue. Hello? Avery and Amanda turn to see a lost little girl. She has long black hair and wears a raggedy dress. In her hand, she holds a basket covered with cloth. By the look on her face, it's clear she's distressed. Avery and Amanda exchange an anxious glance. Can you help me? Something is off about the girl. Avery and Amanda lean in to get a closer look. As the girl speaks, her mouth doesn't match her words. It's as if she's being dubbed in English. My mother told me to run home to gather more bread, but I can't find my way back. The experience of watching the girl's mouth clash with her words is completely unnatural and terribly unsettling. To the celebration? The girl sheepishly nods her head. Maybe we could help you find your way there. Amanda looks around, not sure herself where to go. To her surprise, she finds Avery crouching down, meeting the girl at her level. Do you know what this is? Avery shows the girl a compass. The girl shakes her head in the negative. It's called a compass. It helps you when you're lost. Avery. It's okay. It's okay. How does it work? Avery takes a second to respond, entranced by the girl's vocal asynchronicity. When you turn it, the little red arrow always points north. Do you know what north means? She shakes her head again. Lucky for you, that's where you're going. So what you're going to do is hold, hold it like this and make sure the red arrow always stays this way, on top of the end. Avery holds out the compass for her to take. The girl cautiously grabs it. She does her best to mimic what Avery showed her. Like this? Exactly. Thank you. The girl runs off, basket and compass in hand. The butterfly effect of introducing even the simplest form of advanced technology could have devastating consequences. Amanda, I just wanted to help a lost little girl. She looks at him, not convinced. They keep walking. You wanted to prove a point. A village-wide celebration has been erected around the anachronistic metal spire. The spire climbs out of the dirt, shooting high into the sky. It's reminiscent of something on top of a skyscraper, 
but somehow different, somehow more advanced. Hundreds of villages gather around dozens of fire pits roasting meat. Wooden kegs pour mead and ale. Music playfully emanates from antique instruments. Simple games are played by adults and children alike. Stepping through the crowd, Avery and Amanda listen in on the ambient conversations around them. The two soon realize that it's not just the girl who spoke English, but also everyone else around them. People who look like they come from all over the world, all speaking a common tongue. Some villagers' words match with their mouths, but they are in the minority. How is this possible? Avery watches the visually clashing auditory experience, scanning the crowd until he sees the lost little girl reunited with her parents. We need to find Val and Dunn. Avery just gawks at the metal spire, losing himself in its magnetic pull. He glides towards it, oblivious to anyone or anything else around him, until he stands just inches from its harsh exterior. He reaches out to touch it, simultaneously terrified and intrigued. His hand is just inches from making contact when... Avery. He turns, snapped out of his trance. Don't leave me like that. We need to stay close. The two are soon distracted by a large crowd forming in front of a makeshift stage. It looks as if a show is about to start. Now within the crowd, Avery and Amanda wait for the performance to begin. An orator, old and wise, steps onto the stage along with a group of players who act out the orator's words. Many generations ago, the first of our people were summoned to this land, driven by images of paradise. Amanda can't help but glance at Avery, who has a disturbed look. This already sounds a little too familiar. How did ancient people find this place if we only just discovered it? Maybe it wasn't always hidden. The players walk behind a boat prop and pretend to crash on the island. Though the island rejected their vessel, they were welcomed with open arms. They found the land's resources bountiful, its soil fertile. The players pretend to chop down trees and plant crops. But despite the land's gifts, they desired to return to their home. They sailed outwards, only to be met by the Great Barrier. The players, now in a new prop boat, run into a sheet of hanging yellow cloth. That must be what we passed through. It can't be natural. Finding they could not depart, the settlers remained, building a home for themselves. The players pretend to construct simple homes and farms on stage. The years progressed, and the last of the first settlers passed on. But their death was not in vain, for a new generation was there to carry on their legacy, one which lived in peace and harmony, obscured from the outside world. How can an island go from hidden to findable? But God needed more children for his kingdom. He revealed his holy land once more, summoning more of his chosen through visions of paradise. A new ship crashes on the island, filled with a new mix of people. Even though they hailed from different lands and spoke different tongues, the seemingly disparate groups found that they could understand each other without struggle. The first of many gifts from God. God? We've seen no signs of religious iconography. A god who apparently has very real powers. Not very scientific of you. Despite this gift, the newly arrived settled far from their kin. And for many years, the two peoples lived in isolation. Until one day, a land dispute brought conflict to the two communities. A battle begun, and a life was lost. The two groups fight each other with propped swords until someone acts like they are stabbed and dies. 
That is when he first appeared to us and showed us a better way. A giant face made of gold cloth is brought to life through intricate puppetry. God banished our weapons of war and decreed that if we were to inhabit this land, there must be no violence, no war, and no killing. These were forbidden. The players throw their weapons away. He said we must work together and live in peace or else we could not enjoy his paradise. So they joined hands and followed God's word. The previously warring groups joined hands on stage. Once God made himself known, he told the settlers of the duty they must fulfill to secure their right to this holy land. He decreed that once a season, one of his chosen must ascend from this earthly plane and join him in the heavens above. An honor only given to the most holy and devout among us. And so it was that every generation, more of his chosen would be summoned to this land to live a life free from conflict, need, and suffering, and instead flourish in peace, prosperity, and equality. More and more people arrive on stage to join hands with the existing players. That is why we are gathered here today and why we share our story once more. For today, a chosen will ascend. It must be some sort of sacrificial ceremony, not uncommon among isolated groups. This doesn't feel right. We should leave. Join us now for the Ceremony of Ascension. All the festival attendees, including the crowd in front of the stage, travel towards the metal spire. Avery and Amanda try to shimmy their way out, but are dragged along with the crowd. A massive crowd now surrounds the metal spire. Avery and Amanda wedge somewhere in the middle. All are silent, waiting for something to happen. The ground shakes. The metal spire illuminates with a radiant yellow glow. The yellow glow detaches itself from the spire and morphs in the air into an approximation of a face with eyes, a nose, and a mouth. Avery cannot believe what he's seeing, transfixed by the sight before him. The ceremony of ascension has begun. Who among you is worthy? Random villages in the crowd begin spasming. Despite their seizures, they push their way forward, one man forcefully shoving Avery out of the way. Avery looks at Amanda, both of them terrified. Without warning, the same invisible force comes for Avery, consuming him. He staggers forward, his body uncontrolled and zombie-like. Avery stands in a beautiful grassy field with the other possessed villagers, their previous location nowhere to be found. Despite having control of their bodies returned to them, they all look mortified. Avery turns to one of them. Do you know what's going on? This is it. This is our test. Test of what? Who is worthy of ascension? What does that mean? But before the villager has time to answer, a massive glowing light brighter than the sun appears on the horizon. Come to me. As if on cue, all the villagers sprint towards the light, each trying to outrun the other. Seeing no other option, Avery sprints with them. The giant glowing face watches its subjects in silence. Near the spire, Amanda pushes herself through the crowd after Avery, who now kneels in front of the spire with the other enchanted villagers. She kneels next to him, desperately trying to shake him awake. Avery, Avery, wake up! But Avery can't hear her. He's too far gone. A group of non-possessed villagers drag Amanda away. You mustn't interrupt the ceremony! Avery! 
Avery runs at full speed with the other villagers, still not exactly sure what he's doing or why. All he can tell is that the others are hungry to get to the light first. One villager is clearly ahead of all the others, a young woman. She sprints with fierce determination. Amanda watches in horror as Avery and the possessed villagers levitate off the ground, their bodies limp. Amanda breaks away from the villagers holding her and runs back to Avery, jumping, trying to pull him down, but she's too late. Avery is too high off the ground. She looks up to see that one villager is much higher than the others, the same young woman who leads the charge in Avery's vision. A mother screams out. No! Don't go! A man holds her back, the girl's father. Please! Avery watches as the young woman reaches the light on the horizon, lost in its blinding glow. Amanda looks up at the floating woman as she is consumed by a flash of light. And when the light clears, she's gone. The floating villagers slowly descend, their bodies collapsing as they reach the ground. My daughter! She's gone! The father leads her away. Amanda cradles Avery in her lap. Avery, wake up! Avery slowly comes to, disoriented. Are you okay? I, I didn't win the race. What? Suddenly, Commander Dunn steps forward, rifle raised. The villagers cower backwards at the sight of the weapon. Dunn calls out to the metal spire. My name is Commander Dunn of the United States Marine Corps. State your identity. Val appears at the edge of the crowd. Commander! Stay back, Ensign. Val makes eye contact with Amanda and Avery, who are still on the ground. Dunn aims his rifle at the giant face. Who are you, and what have you done to these people? The ground shakes. Weapons are forbidden. The outsider must be punished. Dunn floats upwards, much like Avery and the villagers before him. Get the professors back to the ship! Val makes her way to Amanda and Avery. She helps Avery stand, then looks helplessly at her commander. Dunn rises higher and higher until a small point of light appears on his chest. Before he can react, his entire body is vaporized. No! At Val's shout, the villagers turn towards the three, fearful of what they might do next. Seize their weapons! Violence is forbidden! Commotion infects the villagers as they launch towards Val, Avery, and Amanda. Run! The three backpedal, pushing and squeezing their way through the crowd that has now collapsed in on itself. Everyone fights for order in the chaos. Avery, Amanda, and Val fight to stay together, but the sea of bodies is too thick. They soon find themselves separated amid the commotion. Avery looks for his companions as the villagers swirl all around him. Amanda! Avery sees an opening. Making a split-second decision, he charges forward into the jungle. The sun has just set, making the jungle dark and ominous. Avery stops to catch his breath, looking behind him to make sure he wasn't followed. For now, he seems to be alone. Beach. Avery turns in a circle, but every direction looks the same. Compass. He reaches for his waistline before remembering he gave it away. Ah, damn. Avery looks up, now panicked. Amanda? Val? Is someone there? Avery sees something. A bird on the forest floor. He turns around. A man stands directly behind Avery. The same man from the ceremony who consoled the wailing mother. No matter how harmless he may have looked before, he's angry now. I, 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 I come in peace. I don't 
the father smacks Avery on the head with a fist-sized rock. Everything goes black. Amanda breaks through the tree line onto the beach. She sees Val, who's already made it back to the campsite. Val stands alone. The base camp is deserted. Empty tables and half-eaten rations, the electronic equipment still running. The two dinghies are still parked on the beach. Farragut, this is Ensign Valeria Torres. Requesting backup. Commander Dunn is MIA. Do you copy? Farragut, do you copy? Val startles at Amanda's approach. Dr. Palmer, where's Dr. Walker? I hoped he was with you. We have to go back. The commander's final order was to get you two back to the Farragut. Not without Avery. There's an entire village back there that wants our throats. We're not equipped to go after him. Where are your men? Gone. Val picks up a backpack and heads toward the dinghies. Where are you going? We were given an order. Screw your orders! He could be in danger! Orders are all we have left. Val keeps moving. Amanda chases after her. How old are you anyways, huh? I graduated from the academy three months ago. They didn't teach you no man left behind? They taught us to accept when the mission has failed. Val throws her pack in the dinghy. What about human decency? I guess they left that out of the curriculum. You want to go back for him? Be my guest. But I'm clearly not qualified to help you. This was my first real assignment. And I failed it. Spectacularly. None of this is your fault. We weren't ready for any of this. Orders are all that's left of the commander. Let me at least feel like I did something right by following them. If I can save you, maybe that's enough. Val sits in the boat. She looks at Amanda, resigned. Avery's eyes slowly blink open. He tries to move his arms, but finds they're bound to a wooden beam in the corner of the room. Looking down, he sees his legs extended in front of him on a floor of packed dirt. A large red bump protrudes from his forehead, the pain blurring his vision. Avery fights through the disorientation to see the makings of a small one-room home. Its amenities include an old kitchen, three simple beds, and a roaring fire that basks the room in a soft orange glow. At the far end of the room, a boy, age 10, lies in the bed, coughing and moaning. In the other bed lies his mother, sleeping soundly. There's no sign of the boy's father. Avery feels the rope round his wrist and realizes he's not actually bound very tightly. He's able to easily untie himself. Now standing, Avery makes his way to the door, careful not to wake the boy or his mother. But just when he's at the door, the boy has another coughing fit, stopping Avery in his tracks. Avery looks at the door, then back at the boy. Avery creeps past the mother once more and kneels next to the boy's bedside. He flips his hand over and is about to place the back of his hand against the boy's forehead, but stops just inches from his skin, something stopping him. He instead reaches into his pocket and dumps out an aspirin from the bottle he stowed earlier. He opens the capsule and empties its powdery contents into a nearby cup of water. Avery delicately slides his hand under the back of the boy's pillow, raising his head ever so slightly. He then drizzles the water into his mouth, the boy drinking instinctually. With the boy medicated, Avery once again tries to make his escape, but is stopped by the sound of a carriage pulling up just outside the front door. Muddy footsteps approach. Avery dashes back to where he was tied up, trying to make it look like he's still restrained. The front door flies open. 
the father, who Avery will soon get to know as Daxa, pushes the supply cache from the base camp into the house. He leaves it in the center of the room before attending to his wife's bedside. You must get up. She's gone. Daxa moves to his son's bedside and feels his forehead. His attention then turns to Avery. Like most of the other villagers, Daxa's words don't match his mouth. What is this? Weapons? A gift. From my people to yours. Daxa cautiously opens the box and reaches inside. He pulls out a small propane stove, medications, walkie-talkies, Velcro pouches, calculators, pesticides, and water purification chemicals, among other tools and technologies. Medicine. New ways to cook your food and, and clean your water. Tools to communicate across great distances. Substances to keep the insects off your crops. We can do all those things. Your gifts are not welcome. You may have your own solution to these problems, yes, but what's in there will solve them better than you can possibly imagine. Who are you? I'm one of the chosen. You dare speak such heresy? If you're chosen, then you will not sow the seeds of conflict. I, I was summoned here with visions of paradise, just like all of you. And as you may have seen today, I almost ascended. I saw you rise, yes. But it is not possible. Your pilgrimage was not announced. You could not be chosen. I am, but my colleagues aren't. Then how are they here? You don't make sense. We discovered this place just a few days ago. We came to investigate. Our land is hidden. Only the chosen can find it. Whatever was keeping it hidden stopped. It's visible to the entire world now. Then there will be more invaders. God will protect us. Avery looks at the sick boy. Uh, can your god heal your son? Some things are beyond God's power. Why are you holding me here? Why not give me up to your people? Your god? You will not understand. Try me. I'm very knowledgeable. Do you have children? I have a cat. Daxa cocks his head. It is a great honor to ascend. Few chosen are given such an opportunity. But it's one thing to see it happen to someone else. Another to see it happen to one of your own. The woman who ascended. Our daughter. Daxa looks down, heartbroken. Avery looks at the empty bed behind him, putting it together. My wife's heart could not bear it. I soon found that mine could not either. I thought if, if I held you to the next ceremony of ascension, I could exchange your life for hers. Where is your daughter now? One with God. Not that it matters now. Lost in my sorrow, I broke God's tenet. I committed violence against you. He will never accept my offer now. I, I don't know if I'm chosen. I, I frankly don't know what I am, but I know I'm not your enemy. Let me prove it to you. Avery slowly brings his hands from around his back to his front, showing he was never restrained. I could have left any time. I chose to stay. Why? Listen to your son. Daxa looks at Avery, confused. He's been sleeping soundly ever since I gave him medication. You dare touch my son? I, I didn't touch him. I just gave him something to ease his discomfort. Daxa promptly attends his son's bedside, just as Avery claimed. The child sleeps peacefully. Daxa looks at Avery like a new man, a bewildered expression on his face.
the dinghy zips through the rough waters. Amanda holds on tight while Val steers the rudder. How much farther? Not sure. Visibility's poor. We should come up. The boat crashes into the same invisible force field as before, glowing yellow energy radiating outward from the point of impact. Amanda and Val lunge forward, tumbling into the boat. Sorry, my bearings are off. Val maneuvers herself back to the engine, restarting the motor. The boat slowly moves forward just a few feet until it bounces delicately off the barrier. Amanda shimmies to the front of the boat and reaches out slowly with her hand, farther and farther until contact. A yellow glow emanates in a wave-like pattern where Amanda touched the air. She goes in again, this time with her entire hand. She places her palm flat against the glowing wall of energy and pushes, her face straining with effort until something pushes Amanda back. She tumbles backwards into the boat. Val helps her up. Dr. Palmer! I don't think we're leaving. Avery now holds one walkie-talkie while Doxa holds the other. The boy rests peacefully, his mother still bedridden. Avery speaks into his walkie-talkie. Hello? Hello? Now curious, Doxa tries speaking through his own. Hello? You have to press the button. Hello? Hello? Good. Now, if I were on the other side of the village, we'd be able to communicate. This will be useful. Thank you. May I ask you a question? You may. What language do you speak? Indonesian. And you? English. So when I speak, you hear Indonesian? To me, I'll speak Indonesian. Just as for you, I'll speak English. And and where are you from, uh, originally? It is not to be spoken of. Once we arrive, the old world is forgotten. Please, I'm an anthropologist. What does this mean? I study people, cultures, languages. My parents arrived here from a land called Sumatra, but I was born here. Now your children will be born here. Oh, I don't plan on staying. What could be worth returning to? You have all you could need here. Avery honestly doesn't have an answer. I, I just realized I don't know your name. Daksa. My wife, Joanna. Our son, Tilo, after my father. Avery, it's nice to meet you. Avery offers his hand to Daksa. Daksa looks at it, at first not sure what to do. He then slowly reaches out his own hand to meet Avery's. But the moment the tips of their fingers touch, Tilo violently coughs up blood all over his blanket. Daxa rushes over, holding his son. Joanna finally rises, just as concerned as her husband. What's wrong? Daxa snaps his head towards Avery with an accusatory look. What did you do? It was helping him. You saw? You poisoned him. No, it, it was just aspirin. Uh, unless your people's immune systems can't process the chemicals, which couldn't happen due to extended isolation. And attack itself. You could never be chosen. I was just trying to help. You came here to destroy, to conquer. Enraged, Doxa grabs Avery and yanks him out of the chair. <gasps> One hand on the back of his neck, the other pulling his hair. Doxa forces him out the front door. Avery struggling to gain his footing. Joanna holds Tilo as he continues heaving up blood. Daxa drags Avery through the door. Stop! Let me go! Daxa is silent, filled with reckless fury. Avery's cries for help alert the other villagers. 
they soon exit their homes and follow the two men. Doxa throws Avery to the base of the metal spire, before looking high into the sky. An outsider has poisoned my son! The giant face returns. There shall be no violence. It is forbidden. The metal spire glows a radiant yellow. Avery rises. Put me down! I don't want to ascend! This is just a misunderstanding. I didn't mean to hurt him. I'm sorry. I'm... Uncontacted, Part 2. Written, produced, and edited by Jacob Levy. Narration by Mike Roberts. Dr. Avery Walker, played by Aaron Corwin. Dr. Amanda Palmer, played by Kelsey Painter. Ensign Valeria Torres, played by Mia Rodriguez. Commander Dunn, played by Patrick Viersba. The Orator, played by Joanna Mosnet. Doxa, played by Jason Tanujaye. Joanna, played by Kat Loveland. The Lost Little Girl, played by Kit Valentine. Villager number one, played by Matthew C. Buckley. Villager number two, played by Jacob Levy. The Giant Face, played by Garrett Tordo. Music and themes by Cristian Cordero Alba. Music by Joey Martinez. Engineering consultation by Joey Martinez. Art by Cristian Joel Rosas. Special thanks to Julia Tordo, Nick Frangione, Madison Goldman, Eric Chernick, Cullen Dimer, Jennifer Jacobs, and Charles Levy. Continues in part three.